Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com. Fighting Through Podcast, Episode 35. Freddie Lineker, North Africa veteran. More great unpublished history. We did anything to get a couple of days sick. They used to put the, the finger, they used to put the finger on the line and let one of the lads hit it with a hammer to break it. I and the sister came down. Oh uh, religion, you see, well, Italian, Catholic, which I am obviously I wasn't lying. But uh, I thought, that's a good, I'm, I'm right here, you see. So uh, I said, Catholic, but that was naughty, because... So it was herded onto cattle trucks, which you've seen uh, in uh, all across and all that, where they've had barbed wire up to the little windows and um, just just a bucket in where, where they put about 60 or more people in, 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 and the bucket was in the middle and it was all over the floor before you went many yards. And then it comes light, and we're completely surrounded. And one of them, little Jackie Furman, he got it. He was holding his stomach in. He was saying to Jack, him, and Jackie says, my belly does hurt me. And he's holding it in. Oh, well, it was awful. Hello again, I'm Paul Chailson of Bill Chiel, whose World War II memoirs have been published by Pen and Sword in Fighting Through from Dunkirk to Hamburg. The aim of these podcasts is to give you the stories behind the story. You'll hear memoirs and memories of veterans connected to Dad's war in some way, and much more. Hello and a very warm welcome. Today we're going to hear about the war of infantryman Freddie Lineker. It relates to the period around 1942, when Dad's 50th Division were firmly on their back feet, being beaten up somewhat by the Germans. There's even a new book about that period called The 50th at Bay by Barry Barnes. Freddy saw some tough times during the fighting before being taken prisoner, when he saw some even tougher times. My goodness, you'll hear all about it soon. Now I believe I've got a new group of listeners. The opening of a new battlefront in North Africa in June 1940, 
meant that the island of Malta became a crucial stepping stone for the Allies' ships and aircraft in the Mediterranean Sea, and for her gallantry in defending herself by the heroism and devotion of its people, Malta was awarded the George Medal by King George VI on behalf of a grateful British nation. Churchill called the island an unsinkable aircraft. If you're listening from the big brave island of Malta, then I feel kind of honoured, and thank you because I've just found out that I'm number 12 in the history charts in Malta. So, il giornata ictiba to anyone listening from Malta. And if you have any wartime stories to share, do get in touch via the website, fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk. I did go to Malta on holiday twice. Great place, lovely people. Also, I've recently discovered that I'm uh, number 35 in the history chart for podcasts in the United Arab Emirates. So, Ahalan uh, Bika if that's the right way to pronounce it. Welcome everybody anyway, wherever you are in the world. Right, women at war behind us now. I think from the feedback I've had, people did enjoy all of that history about my mum and the wren. A bit of feedback I had. I was listening to your podcast today, your mother's wartime diaries, about a holiday in Colwyn Bay, North Wales. This was my favourite holiday spot as a child. Dave Wilson. And uh, Brian Willett posted on the Facebook page, Hi Paul, I live about a mile away from the Dingle. It follows a stream through Colwyn Bay to the seafront, in the village called Old Colwyn, which has its own stream called Fairy Glen. And Brian's posted a few other photographs and other little historic details which pertain to the story. So thank you very much for that, Brian. Great stuff. I must admit, uh, when I started putting the Women at War season together, I wasn't totally sure, um, but many thanks to the plenty of people who wrote in saying they enjoyed it, and especially if you sent best wishes to my mum, her little face really lit up when I told her all about it. She's actually living in a care home in Cambridge, so I'd like to give a shout out to all the staff at the Cambridgeshire Care Home and say thanks for doing such an important job so well. In particular, hi to Italian Giovanni, who started to play the Fighting Through podcast to my mum through Spotify on his iPhone, and she so enjoys it. Ciao Giovanni, buono uomo. Okay, feedback time now. Uh, Firstly, from me to you, listener, I'd like to say thank you so very sincerely for everyone's support. We're 35 episodes in and I'm beginning to get active followers on social media and people emailing me about stuff. Uh, You know who you are and I want you to know that it is so welcome. We seem to be building such a nice community around this evolving story. People get it. Every now and again, a new bit of history pops up to expand the story, and I feel so utterly blessed that I'm in a position to share it with you. I interviewed veteran tank Captain Stanley Perry last week, and I'll tell you now, you do not want to miss him. Anyone following me on Twitter and Facebook will already have seen a short video of his telling us a very funny tale. Stick around to the very end of this show, and I'll be sharing an extract from his interview. Captain Stanley Perry. Thank you again for all your support.
I'm very grateful to Root Schermer from the Netherlands for all his support on Twitter. Um, blessing me, must retweet everything I do. And uh, also his recent sponsorship of me through Patreon. And some more feedback by email. What a treasure trove of undocumented history you've unearthed. Truly a testament to the young men who went in to teach Jerry a lesson. A truly condensed piece of history where joy, terror, elation and all in between happen in the space of minutes. Thanks again. Baudouin Duivestinchen. Many thanks to Arnold Howard from Mesquite, Texas, who said such nice things about me and the show. Arnold, you made me feel very humble. Arnold added, I spoke to a crew member of a Sherman tank years ago. On Iwo Jima, he saw a Japanese soldier try to place a wooden box of explosives on top of the tank ahead of theirs. Someone killed the soldier with machine gun almost the instant he appeared. Okay, this is an interview with Freddie Lineker, a veteran of the British Durhamite Infantry, conducted a few years ago by the North West Archive. Wilfshaw gave me a copy, and it's about a tough period in the war around 1942 in the Battle of Gazala. Not the Battle of Gaza, as I mistakenly said in a previous episode, so you can have a laugh on me at that if you wish. I've got broad shoulders. But not so funny is the state of the fighting during that battle, in which massive numbers of British troops were killed or captured. This episode focuses particularly on Freddy's experiences at POW. That wasn't in that battle, but he recounts talking to one of the few survivors. It's 1943, and Dad's just arrived in Tunisia, sailing from England on the Queen Mary, before an overland journey from Egypt. Looking over the faces of the tired lads, they showed signs of strain, which was quite understandable. Although I'd been in the sixth for two years, and had known many of the lads by name, and more by sight, I could hardly believe that I did not recognise anybody. I decided to wander over to B Company to find some of my old mates, who I'd known since Territorial Reserve Army Camp in 1939. I was stunned by what I found. They were all strangers to me except one. Harry Simpson had been a company commander's Batman in England and remembered me, of course. He seemed very depressed and gave me the impression that he needed a rest from the trauma of battle. When I asked him how come I didn't recognise anybody, he said, Well, Bill, it's good to see somebody I know from the old days. And since it might do me good to unburden myself, I'll tell you all that's happened to the sixth that you remember. I found it to be a very sad and unbelievable story. Owing to the way that the war was going at the time, the enemy were far better equipped than we were, Better anti-tank guns and larger tanks carrying formidable 88mm guns and the dreaded mobile 88mm, which served as anti-tank, anti-aircraft or artillery pieces, using different kinds of shell. Having a superior quantity of weapons, the Germans surrounded the British, and to cut a long story short, before they surrendered, many had been killed. The remainder apart from some who managed to escape, were taken prisoner at Gazala. So no wonder I didn't see any faces I recognised. 
At that time the Germans played havoc with our desert army. Had I arrived with them, the chances of my being here today would have been remote. Here's the late Wilf Shaw introducing a bit of background to the state of affairs in the North African campaign. He's written this stuff on the back of the cassette of Freddy's interview, so it's quite interesting. Wartime memories. One man's war. Yeah. Just one of 50... This is about a guy called Freddy Lineker. Oh, And yeah. you've written just one of 50 divisions casualties. I remember now, yeah. But more or less what it says on there, really. Yeah. All right. One of one of fiftieth division's casualties at the Battle of Gazala uh, in May and June '42. Oh, recounted by a soldier of Eighth DLI Durham Light Infantry. Uh, uh, and then underneath you've written uh, to those in the Gazala line at this time in 1942. Any one of four possibilities was likely. One, you could be killed, and for you that was the end. Two, you could be wounded if lucky, not badly. Three, you could be taken prisoner. Four, you could survive to fight one nerve-wracking action after another. My own experience. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry, uh, my I own experience was a mixture of two and four. Yeah. 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 So. This is the Fighting Through Podcast, episode 35, Freddie Lineker. Listener, if you want to know more about the Desert War, read Dad's book, Hardback or Kindle, etc. Or listen to the podcast episodes with Wilf Shaw in them. Or listen now to Freddie Lineker, one of the survivors. This is the story of one man's war in 1942. I had to go stand to in, in, in the dugouts and all that at night, but... Uh, I suppose I was, it was cushy, cushy for me up to then. And then they got the brilliant idea that employed men or whatever you did couldn't avoid these patrols. So Freddie had to go out on a patrol then, which was a very exciting experience because we was lucky to get back. All we had was a shovel, a small shovel affair, digging rock. And it, 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 it was just like firing peas at a tank because it made no impression. In fact, it was the 25 pounders the artillery used those open sights. To cut a long story short, I was one that got back. We lost the patrol commander. We lost the company commander. Prisoners, just like picking fish out of a bowl. Anyway, we got away on, on the three-tonner back to uh, Gazala. Well, we still did the stand twos. Still the same routine, washing your clothes in petrol. Marvellous thing to wash your clothes in, except for the fact that after a few washes, it just disintegrated, closed it. The uh, Red Cross, Church of Gotland, Sally Ann, Salvation Army came up. Even the Salvation Army had, had let you have bottles, uh, cans of beer, so that was a, an event in itself, wasn't it? Uh, and they did. And, and uh, cigarettes and whatever like that. It, but you was there. Nobody else was at front of you. He was there. You see, and there was all this buzzing going round, round round about May, the end of May. All this buzzing was going round that he was going to have another batch at us. You see. And did he? Oh yes. And there's Gazala. There's Tobruk. He came round like that and made for Tobruk at the same time he cut the supplies off. 
So what happened to you? So you just sat in a box then. We have the we have the order. Dempsey was the general then, you know, he got sent back home for this. 80,000 of us went. The order then was that we had to evacuate. So we don't evacuate rear ways, we evacuate forward ways. Well, Freddie again is, is thinks he's very lucky. He's on a truck with the food and the bits of ammo and all that with a colour sergeant because a colour sergeant is the... He's the uh, paymaster, the food master, is the lot, you know, Jackie Hudson was, and a couple of other blokes, and we were on this truck, uh, dead of night, we're going out there, and then it comes a time when we have to get through this line of, of call it the enemy, to get south. Well, we hadn't got, oh, a couple of hours, anti-tank shell went through the engine of our vehicle. There's trace, you could see them, uh, you know, the trace is going backwards and forwards, and so you're firing at this, you don't know who the hell you're firing at, it's a bit black. And then it comes light, and we're completely surrounded, completely surrounded, and one of them, little Jackie Furban, he got hit. And I'll always remember him. He was holding his stomach in. And you know, they talk to, to, to he's a Geordie. He was saying to Jack, he didn't say that, him, and Jack, he says, my belly does hurt me. And he's holding it in. Oh, well, it was awful. <laughs> so I tell you, we're surrounded with all this lot. And they pick us off then. Right. That's the end of that for, for us, you see. He come along, take your range, your watches. He took me when he rings. He just bought me for the when we got married. Any road, they stripped us. We couldn't. They wouldn't even give us a, a tin of bully off the vehicle. So eventually, they get a three tonner, piles us all on, along with others, blazing up. And we set off then for Benghazi. We didn't know it Benghazi, but I could tell you that now. We were on to Benghazi. No water, no food, no nothing. It was about oh maybe. 300 miles, we went on the course road to Benghazi. And we put in this camp, as they call it, well, on the camp. There was no, there were no ups, there was nothing for the, for, the, for the prisoners. It was just sand, a sanded compound with wire around, just out of wire. Just a sort of a, a cattle enclosure, if you want to, with barbed wire around. And <clears throat> you just slept where you was if, you got, if you'd managed to keep your, all your gear and something to lay on, such as your water sheet, you might lay on that on top of the land. And out of the sand, jumping up and down was fleas. Toilet facilities was a big hole, and inside that toilet at the bottom was what they called beetles that was as big as at that. We, we, we got a soup there, which was just floating greens on top of water. Well, we were there a few days, and then I got acute dysentery. I was running away to the sand, and I couldn't get up. And of course, they had the road calls. You had to get up, get in the line, bunches of fours or fives, counted. Then they can't count. You have to count you again. Anyway, I couldn't get up at the finish. And <laughs> an East York's lad, Ernie Walkup, who's now dead and gone, he, he picked me up and took me to the eye ties and said, I want the medical attention, you see. 
Blood coming. Blood. You name it. Everything. They sent me into hospital in uh, Tripoli. And without a word of a lie, the excrement on the floor there was anything between three and four inches deep. And we was in bunks, double bunks, and I was on the top bunk. And if you could, you, obviously we couldn't get to the toilet in time, and their toilet was just all in the wall like they are on the continent, a lot of them. And the medical treatment was bismuth tablets. No doctors, no nothing, just orderlies that uh, it could have been anybody off the street. How long were you there? A few weeks, and then, three weeks. And then, and then they shipped me on an hospital ship from Tripoli to Naples. And it was an Italian hospital ship called the Virgilio. But it was manned by German medics. They were very good. And they took us to an hospital at Caserta in the south of Italy. And uh, that was Sorella's sisters, Catholic sisters, you see. Beautiful, beautiful hospital. White walls, white linen. But you couldn't sleep. You couldn't sleep in the bed. Why? Bugs. At night. So those that could get out of bed slept on one of the few forms down the middle of the... between the beds. Those with one leg up and walk. They just had to lie there, bitten to death, folks. So from there, they put us on hospital train. And we went up to an hospital which was run by a British medical officer of the Royal Medical Corps at Bergamo. Well, after experiencing all this, uh, you see, learning a few tricks, they came round to registers in this one and they said, no. Oh, and the sister came down. Oh, uh, religion, you see? Well, Italian, Catholic, which I am, obviously. I wasn't lying. But uh, I thought, that's good. I'm, I'm right here, you see? So I said, Catholic. Oh, yes, good. Ah, but that was naughty because he used to have you up every morning at five o'clock to go to Mass. <laughs> eh? Which wasn't a good thing, was it? <laughs> and it went so far, if you was a Catholic with one leg on, up, they used to come with a treacher and take you. When you finally recovered uh, and left... That was in March 1943. What happened then? I was sent to PG-73, uh, a prisoner of war camp in Italy, northern Italy, you see. Well, that's when time we used to do walks and play ball games in the what's it they had a concert party they had um, a library oh nice nice of course but you're not home you don't know when you're getting home that is a problem and everything is, is fair to fair to middling as they say in Lancashire you see so till we get to September in 1943 and then over the over the bush we hello they've invaded and they're coming up now oh it won't be long we'll soon be off we'll soon be off back home so we go to bed one night after eating an onion in bed and playing bridge and about you wake up next morning surrounded with Germans so it was herded onto cattle trucks which you've seen as you know on some of your films uh, in uh, Holocaust and all that where they've had barbed wire up to the little windows and um, just just a bucket in where, where they put about 60 or more people in, in, in and the bucket was in the middle and it was all over the floor before you went many yards and you were lying in it, and there was no food, you was locked in. And it's still warm in September. 
and we was let out in Innsbruck, where on the platform all all the all the uh, the local people was were spitting and 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 pushing you and nudging you and shouting at you and abusing you. And there they gave us they gave us a piece of sausage, a bit of bread and water, and then back in again. And the the old journey took three or four days. And where did you end up? I ended up at a place called Musburg, south of Munich, at 7A. And that was a, a, a transit camp for all for all prisoners of war. It just went there for two or three days. Then they shipped us to the famous one, which is 8B, Lambsdorff. That was a prisoner of war camp in the First World War, and after that it, the Germans used it for a training camp. Uh, and there you do you go you go through the routine no no way you were allowed you was numbered you was photographed you was put in a hut you was put on a worksheet within a few days I was transported again to Obersilesia in Poland to my first work which was down a condemned pit work coal mine. I stayed there, and we was transferred then to a huge mine at Boyton, which is now called Bitum, and it was 1,600 metres deep I, I, I worked on in a metre I seam. Now, the hours of work, 6 to 2, 2 to 10, 10 to 6. But if you was on the 6 a.m. shift, they got you up at 3. And by the time they counted you, and giving you coffee, that's all. Erzsas coffee, which is uh, imitation coffee. And you was taken to the, to, the, to the bathhouse, and you pick your lamp, and you got a pair of old overalls that was falling to pieces. Then you was taken to the pit head, handed over to a civilian, and taken down, and all counted each time you, you met. So by the time you got to the bottom, and you'd walk to your face or to the seam you was working on, it was six o'clock. Oh, and we had one day off a month, and we made a, uh, we, we were spared a mark a day, Lagergeld, as it was, uh, which uh, about a month's pay bought your, bought your razor blade, you follow. Then you had a month, uh, you had a day off a month, a Sunday, always had it on a Sunday, uh, in between shifts, so that it didn't disturb the shift system, uh, where you'd allow, so you all your blankets so all the fleas could come out and the lice. <laughs> And we used to, that was the day off, was sitting on the step, if it was nice, with your vest off, going down the seams, cracking lice. What was the spirit like amongst you? So, well, you see, some, some, well, some took it quite well, but there was, you see, when you were with all men, and, 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 and they're waiting for mail, they're waiting for mail coming from home, and one of them gets a letter, Say many of them got letters like that, and I'm I'm going up with my head in the air. I don't get letters like this. They've left them. They can't wait for them. They've seen somebody else. Uh, they, they if they can't bank on coming home, they're not wasting their lives. With, and this, where you're caught and you don't know when you're coming home, it's not like being in Strangeway. You've got three years. You know you're doing your three years or two with good remission, there you don't know when you'll ever come home again. We did anything to get a couple of days sick. 
They used to put the, the finger, they used to put the finger on the line and let one of the lads hit it with a hammer to break it. I cut my leg, cut my leg on purposely. And I'm, of course, you get all these tips, some are crazy and otherwise. They said, rub coal in it. Oh, it'll make it, it'll make it, it'll be a beauty, that. I rub coal in it and coal's the best stealing thing you could ever put on. Because it's, it's up the trees, isn't it? It's an healing factor. All I finished up with was a black mark. <laughs> you see? So then, I do it again. And then they said, try this. And of course, the lamps was like the old carbide lamps, the acetylene, with the powder in, and you poured water on, it created the gas to give you the light. I rubbed, I rubbed carbide. And that bubbled up beautifully, all sore and, and whatever. So I go sick with it. Now I get three days after that. Did anybody try to escape? Not in Poland. Where? Where do they go in Poland? Because if they go in Poland, they are the, 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 the Russians are coming at, uh, at the other side. They didn't want to go to Russia. So on January the 21st, 1945, they're knocking at the door. It's the Russians coming in from the east. You see? So we're all outside. And they set us up on the march. And we marched all night. And it was perishing. Even your breath froze. Then we was daily marching. Anything, 15, 20 miles. And at night time, no parcels, no extra food. Stop at a farm. Put you in the barn for the night. Now, you could go out and scrounge if you got a turnip or a beet or whatever, uh, get a fire going. I was seven stone when I come back. On the road, I want to tell you, by the time we towards the end, we were going one foot forward and two back. And if you dropped out to, for toiletries or whatever at the side, if you didn't get up, it was left. And they shot some of them, and we were passing we were passing piles of them, especially the Russians, when they were just frozen stiff like this. And you couldn't afford to help somebody who dropped because you were on your knees yourself. I finished up with no boots. I, was, I just had rags, a part of my blanket round, round my feet. You started your march in January. When did you finish? I finished on the, at the end of April, about the 30th of April, at a little place, uh, just a little village, but I know it was close to Landshut in Bavaria. And what then? Well, they left us there. They just disappeared. And within, within a matter of hours, the American Third Army, Patton's Third Army came. Right, they come along. Very sorry, but they can't do nothing for us. You just do what you want. Go wherever you want and get what you want. Oh, well, that was an open check, that, wasn't it? So we went into the farmhouse and, you know, they had the bacon hung up, you know, and the hams and eggs and all that. So we got cracking. We soon got something going there. You look after yourself. There'll be transport coming for you. So that's what we did. And the three tunners came. And then they took us to the outskirts of an airfield at Regensburg. And the airfield was where they used to test flight the, uh, the ME-109s, the Messerschmitts and that. And they had the same performance. Uh, Register yourself in, and then do what you want. But keep your eye on the board in, for departures. So we went out scrounging again. See, then everywhere. And then the day came, well, Freddie saw his name up there, and uh, they put us on the Dakota, the old Dakota, and they flew us to Reims in France. 
which was a transit camp, an American, American kitchen. Open 24 hours a day, no less. <laughs> the queue, God love us, miles long. So we attached ourselves to this queue and filled up and attached herself again. And it was a merry, it was a carousel. And you talk about food, no danger. That was really the top. So we stopped there, say, a couple of days. And then they put us in the Lancaster bomber, in the bomb space of a Lancaster. And they flew us to Tring in Arcature. And immediately the doors opened and we stepped out on the, you feel great, you know. No, no messing. Talk, these people talk about winning the pools. Nothing on the way I felt that day. Nothing. And we get out, we tread on the old grass there, and straight away the nurses come up, the medics, with all the delousing powder, down your trousers, under your arms, and we would name it every place, they, every crevice they could find, because he was, he was walking. He was walking. You, you could see the clothes moving with them. And then they bundle us in, showered, new uniform, feed, 42 days compassionate leave, and a warrant for the train, and zip back to Manchester, and straight in the house. Then, and that was, it was, uh, it was uh, 1945, it was the 9th, round about VE Day, VE Day. And then, after the after they give us this famous uh, six weeks, the army decides they might get a bit more out of you. So they send us down to down to Buckinghamshire, near Amersham, to see whether you're, you're a full shilling. After all this lot, you see, they, they they give you a bicycle pump in pieces, say put it together again if you got the cocoa, you know. And then they, 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 give you, they give you a lock off a door and say, put that back so they can use it again. As if you're mad. And no. then, then they took you out on uh, little runs. We went on a five-mile run, run after coming back from that. I didn't want to run again, I didn't. So to see when you're fit. So eventually, after all this famous, all this famous psychiatry and whatever, to see whether he was all there, they decided that I went away A1 and came back C3. That was Freddie Lineker talking to Ev Draper about his war years. Wow, some quite nasty experiences suffered by Freddie there. It's interesting that for all the hardships sometimes suffered by the troops, the POWs had it far harder. Freddie, if you're still around or anyone who knows you, please get in touch. I'm trying to learn more about the fate of the Northwest Archive. That's who recorded the interview, but I understand they've stopped existing now, and uh, the records are presumably somewhere else. Um, but if you know anything about the whereabouts of their records, I'd be grateful if you could get in touch. Now, uh, another plea from me, all about music. Uh... Firstly, I'm going to read a short passage from Dad's book about training in the early days of the war. Route marches were always done in full marching order. Each section of ten men keeping three yards apart, taking turns to carry the Bren gun. We walked for fifty minutes and rested for ten. 
There was a second lieutenant with each platoon consisting of three sections. These marches had to be done, and although there used to be some mourning amongst the lads, it didn't deter us from having a good old sing-song while we were stepping it out, and many a time the words were adapted to suit our feelings. It was no use being miserable, because we knew the job had to be done, and we were rapidly becoming fitter and stronger than we'd ever been before. I remember one thirty-mile march we did, and we all felt a bit rough during the last five miles, when suddenly two three-tonners turned up. The regimental band had arrived to accompany us, and we didn't half-step it out. I've never forgotten that, and even today many a time I tap that tune out with my fingers. Arriving back at camp, the mobile showers were awaiting us. Does anyone listening have a connection with a marching band who might be able to let me have some drum music for use in the show? You know the sort. It thunders out a great drum march with bangs, booms, rat-a-tats and beats as they march down the street. So proper rousy, rousing army march drumming. I've looked everywhere for some and I can't believe I've drawn a blank. Even the so-called royalty-free music websites were no good. Um, I just want to use it occasionally on the show and in return I'll give you loads of shout outs on the show and links on the website etc. Uh, at some point I want to re-record the story of Rufty Hill whom you may remember was drowned on D-Day and he was a member of his regimental band. And I want to play what I'm calling Rufty's Riff in tribute to him and his pals who were all killed in action except one, Bill Vickers. Episode 25 tells their brave story. So, Rufty's Riff, do you know anyone who can play it? Please get in touch, thank you. Next episode. Captain Stanley Perry was a British tank commander in the Sherwood Rangers during World War II. He fought in Normandy right through to Germany. He was wounded several times and shot several enemy, sometimes at close quarters. I spent nearly three and a half hours with him recently, and what a time well spent it was. I don't think you get much better than this. Here's a short extract. If you want to see or hear more, take a quick shifty at my Facebook page, Fighting Through from Dunkirk to Hamburg. I was wearing a leather photograph album which my wife had given me for my 21st birthday a picture of her in my battle dress uh, breast pocket right and when uh, the surgeons got to work they peeled a piece of shrapnel off the wall of my heart and they said if it hadn't been uh, decelerated by that photograph uh, album crazy. I should have been a goner well Stan gave me a copy of that photograph so uh, it'll be on display in the show notes at some point when that episode comes out if you want another sneak preview of Stan as I say take a look at my fighting through Facebook page but also as a special treat just because I spoil you just keep listening to the end of this episode. All contact info for the shows on the contact page at fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk. In particular, 
if you've enjoyed listening and you think other people would enjoy it, please do subscribe through your listening app as doing this does help raise the profile of the podcast in the search results. Thank you very much in anticipation. P.S. Around September 1940, a considerable act of bravery by Auxiliary Fireman Harry Errington led him to becoming the only firefighter to receive the George Cross during the Second World War. Just before midnight, a bomb virtually demolished a three-storey garage, the basement of which was used as an air raid shelter by fire service personnel. The floors caved in and 20 people, including six firefighters, were killed outright. Harry recovered consciousness and upon escape rescued one of his colleagues and saw another trapped underneath a radiator. He returned to rescue the second man despite his hands being badly burnt and the building due to collapse at any moment. All three men were seriously injured but thanks to Errington's bravery they were all returned to duty. Born in Westminster in 1910, he first trained as an engraver and later as a tailor. When war broke out, he volunteered at a station on Shaftesbury Avenue, near the business where he worked. Harry was later active in basketball administration, particularly during the London Olympics of 1948, and he served as treasurer of the Victoria Cross and George Cross Association until 1990. His George Cross is on display in the collection of the Jewish Museum London. Harry was asked into the station to celebrate his 90th birthday in 2000. The Red Watch presented him with an engraved tankard and copious amounts of birthday cake. The firefighters remarked that Harry was still as razor sharp and fit. Harry Errington, GC, died in London on 15th of December 2004. If you want to hear more stories about high-profile or unusual incidents attended across London, search for London Fire Brigade. They have a Facebook page as well as a Twitter page. And listener, we haven't had one of these for a while, but I'm about to award the latest How Good Is That Award to the London Fire Brigade for keeping Harry's story alive. So, how good is that? And just to reward you if you've stuck this out right to the end, here's another little extract from Stan's interview, coming to a podcast player near you very soon. So, if you want to support the show, and you don't want to miss Captain Stanley Perry, Tank Commander, please subscribe. Now, thank you. Mine's a bit worse because I have a shower of uh, bits of shrapnel on my left chest. And uh, I have difficulty at airports going through. I can't have uh, an MRI scan. Right, because you, yeah. Um, Well, the radiologist said, you blow my machine up. I said, bigger than it, blow my bloody chest up. (laughs) So, So learn soon how Captain Stanley P got all his injuries. I'll give you one clue. Morning Mini and we'll be hearing literally a blow-by-blow account from Stanley himself as to how it all came about. Thank you for listening. Thanks for your support. Please do hear me next time. 
Till then, I'm Paul Cheel saying ta-ta for now. <laughs> <laughs>